Please remain standing as you're able and let us follow after the example of Jesus who with the disciples quite likely would have recited the Shema both when he got up in the morning, when he went to bed in the evening, and as he came before the scriptures. And so if you'll follow after me. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Had. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Scripture this morning is from 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, verses 6 through 10, but it's part of a larger section that starts toward the end of chapter 1 and goes on through chapter 3, where Paul is looking at the issue of wisdom, a wisdom of the world that has actually split the church of Corinth into different factions. And so uh, he comments upon this in uh, chapter 2, verse 6. We, however, do speak a message of wisdom to the mature, uh, not the wisdom of this age and its rulers who are coming to nothing. For the wisdom we declare has been hidden as a mystery from God who has destined us for glory. But the rulers of this world did not understand that wisdom, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. As it is written, Human eye has not seen and human ear has not heard nor human mind conceived the things God has for those who love him. And so the Spirit reveals these things to us and the Spirit searches the deeper things of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Last Sunday, I was preaching in the gym for the uh, New Heights service, and I told them how excited I was about a series that was coming this summer. And the series has got it all. The series has, um, has sex. It has political infighting. It has marital issues. It has parties that go way on too late into the night. It has power struggles. It has money issues. It has people suing each other. It has uh, people even who have died and, and so death becomes an issue as well. I mean, this series has got it all. Now, I need to let you know a couple things. Number one is this series is not coming to TV. It's coming to the church. And more importantly, this series is about the church. All the things I've described to you, that's what is taking place in the city and the churches of Corinth to whom Paul is writing about 51 to 53 years after the birth of Christ. And what we see in Corinth is really an amazing setting. I'll say more about it this afternoon. If you're interested, I'm going to do an overview of Corinth since we'll be there all summer on Sunday morning. But just to give you just a few highlights, the city of Corinth was destroyed by the Romans about 145 years before Jesus. And then, about 44 years BCE, uh, Julius Caesar issued an edict to rebuild the city. And from that moment on, the city became a place of up-and-comers, upwardly mobile people, uh, uh, freed slaves, uh, uh, freed men and women who were slaves, uh, uh, veterans who had been uh, mustered out of the army and wanted to make a name and a place for themselves, descended upon Corinth. And Corinth became a city known uh, as a place for the upwardly mobile. It was a place of uh, great competition. 
uh, as people competed with one another, in fact, to see uh, who could get upwardly mobile, to see who was the greatest in the city. One of the things uh, that actually works to our advantage is we know a lot about Corinth because people were so interested in making themselves famous that they would do things for the city and then they'd put a plaque on it or a monument on it to uh, tell the city that I'm the one who built this uh, sewer system for you or I'm the one who erected this monument for you. And that's one of the reasons we know so much about Corinth. It was an interesting uh, place where people competed with one another to see who might be uh, the greatest. And the competition was not just in sports, though Corinth was known for hosting uh, an every four-year game, that uh, games called the Isthmian Games, that were second only to the Olympics in significance. Uh, Corinth was also second only to Rome in terms of a place on the gladiator tour. Uh, gladiators would fight in Corinth and then go on to fight in Rome, and that's where they could make, in those two places, a name for themselves. Corinth was a place of intense competition. And in fact, the competition apparently even spilled over into the church. And as Paul, as, uh, uh, Paul writes and Matt taught you last week, there's even a division that has hit the church. And they're uh, organizing around which one of the preachers, including Paul and Paul's successors, they like the best. And so there's even a competition among the Christians. Now, part of how they decided who liked the best was that who, would, who was the best speaker. Because you see, um, athletics were not the only competition in Corinth. There was also competition among uh, orators, or we might say rhetoricians, people gifted in rhetoric. And there would be a circuit they would come on, and they would come to Corinth, and people would evaluate and judge them and argue about which one of these orators was the best. So uh, when my uh, older brother was growing up, the big debate, for example was who was the best center fielder, Mickey Mantle or Willie Mays. And, and my grandson now is born into a world that the debate is who's, who's the greatest in basketball. Is it LeBron James or is it Steph Curry? And in the same way, they argued about who is the best of the orators. Who is the best in terms of eloquence and skill at putting together uh, speeches and presentations? And just like in, if you took speech in high school, there were different kinds of speeches you'd have to give, entertainment speech or an oration or an extemporaneous speech. They had similar kinds of categories for Corinth, and then they added one that's so fascinating. They added speeches about boasting. And as one scholar said, Corinth... Uh, made boasting a work of art in the ancient world. And so people would come and give speeches that, that talked about how great they were, and then they evaluated which one of these people claiming to be great was actually the greatest. And so there was intense competition among the boasters, and it was, it was well known in that part of the ancient world. And by boasting, I don't mean like Muhammad Ali boasting. You know, you probably have heard a lot of Muhammad Ali quotes in the last 24 hours, but those were usually quips uh, uh, about his boasting. Some of the favorites I passed on this morning, I'm sure you've heard them. One of them was, if you dream of beating me, you should wake up and apologize. Another one was, uh, I'm so fast, I was in a hotel last night and turned off the light and I got in bed before it was dark. Um, and then, of course, on his robe it was, uh, uh, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, the hands can't hit what the eyes can't see. And, of course, his famous, I am the greatest. But those were quips. But these people in Corinth, man, they were entire speeches boasting and people were evaluating, uh, evaluated by that. Well, that's a problem for Paul, because at least two things we know about Paul judging from this letter to Corinth. Number one is that Paul was not a very good speaker. 
Paul's not the kind of guy you'd give to give the, uh, ask to give the keynote speech. He was much better uh, writing, apparently, than he was in public speaking. And the second thing is Paul cared little for boasting. And so basically Paul's got a problem because he's not a good speaker and because he doesn't boast about how smart he is. Uh, the, the book on him in the church at Corinth is he's not very smart. He's not really any wiser than anybody else. And this theology he has is not really a good theology. It's not really very bright at all. And so word apparently gets back to Paul from some people of a household run by a woman named Chloe. And he's told that he's considered not wise. And he's told he's considered not to be a good orator and not good at boasting. So what he does in chapter 2 and 3 is amazing. He starts boasting about his wisdom and how good it is. Now, the way to read this, I'm told by scholars, is we need to read it as irony. Paul still doesn't think boasting is a good thing, but he's like, he's like, okay, if that's the game you want me to play, I'll play it for you, and I'll tell you what we really ought to boast about. And in chapter 2 and 3, he looks at the kind of wisdom that people normally boast about and contrasts it with real wisdom from God. Well, you might say, why is this such an important issue? Is it just Paul's reputation And I would say, no, it's much bigger than that. Because this kind of wisdom that they have, this kind of boasting, is actually splitting the church, not just in two, but if we're to read between the lines in chapter 1, it may even be divided into four parts. And what's happening is people are claiming they're superior to other people, and they have wisdom that other people don't have access to. And it is hurting the church, and so he needs to address this. The second thing is Paul makes the the, uh, interesting observation That it was the best wisdom of the day that put Jesus to death. So that sort of wisdom is a danger. George B. Caird, who was a um, uh, New Testament scholar of previous generation, made this observation. He said, what happened when Jesus died was an amazing cooperation between the leaders of the greatest government the world had ever seen. That would be Rome. Along with the leaders of the greatest religion the world had seen up to that day. Judaism. And when you got their two leaders together, they nailed Jesus to the tree. So one of the things that Paul says in his boast is, if they're so smart, why did they kill Jesus? They're not as smart as you think. And so it's a serious issue to him, this false wisdom. I was reading a 21st century rabbi who described his job uh, this way. He said, a rabbi's job is to remind the synagogue of their insanity. I think that's what Paul's doing. Paul's saying, you think you're so smart, but I want to tell you you're really off base. And so uh, what I want to do is, is kind of condense chapters 1 through 3 for you and, and share with you four things that strike me as ways you can recognize the wisdom of the world that seems to be smart versus the real wisdom from God. There are at least, there are at least four giveaways. The first one is this, is what's its source? The wisdom of the Corinthians, the wisdom of the Greeks, was the human intellect and human reason. In other words, the smarter you were, or smarter you are, the wiser you are. And that intelligence equals wisdom. And so that sort of wisdom is not as accessible or open to everyone, especially those of us who might not be as smart as other people. And there's something about that. I think we're all attracted by people's smarts. In fact, as I mentioned, I preached in the gym last week, and if you were there in keeping score, I quoted uh, uh, one person, a business professor at Harvard, and two Yale theologians. I mean, there's something about that that's attractive, but it's also very exclusive. And so uh, one of the things that Paul is saying is the source is not human reason and intellect. It doesn't counteract that, but that's not the source. The source is the Holy Spirit of God. 
which reveals to us the deep things of God. And this Holy Spirit is available to people who just got a PhD last week and to people who are walking a high school stage either last week or this coming week and people working still on their GED. This sort of wisdom through the Holy Spirit is available to all people. And the beauty of it is uh, Paul will say that the Holy Spirit searches the mind of God. So the Holy Spirit knows the mind of God. And then in Romans, he'll add to it, and the Holy Spirit knows us as well. So what happens when the Holy Spirit knows God and knows us, then the truths of God are communicated to us in a way that we can, um, we can easily access and we can digest. So the God often reveals things to me in books because I like to read. For other people, it'll be a still small voice or it'll be their experience. Or for other people, it'll be a, a miracle that happens. Though the Holy Spirit knows how we're wired together and how it is we want to receive and can best receive the things of God. But either way, the source is not our intellect. The source is the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing. Second thing is, what's the pattern of the world, world's wisdom or the model, or the way you evaluate it, versus the wisdom of God. And in Corinth, the pattern's pretty clear. This is how you evaluate wisdom. And that is, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? How will I benefit? How will knowing this give me an edge on somebody else who doesn't know this? How will I get ahead by knowing this? And one of the things we'll find later this summer, that even gifts from God, they're trying to use in ways that would put them ahead of other people. And, and that's understandable. That's how it works in Corinth. Everybody in Corinth is, uh, is trying to make a name for themselves, move on up in society. And so whatever they can learn, they're going to judge how valuable it is by how it gets them ahead of other people. But Paul introduces a different way to evaluate wisdom. And it's not what's in it for me, but it's, he said, based on the cross that Jesus crucified, he says, at the end of chapter 1, that's wisdom. Jesus crucified. So that the, the uh, model is, how does what I've learned help me serve or lay down my life for another person? And that's how I evaluate things that have come to me, uh, Paul would say. We often think about the cross as Jesus dying for our sin. Yes. Um, uh, Jesus guaranteeing an eternal existence for us. Yes. But Paul wanted to talk about how the, the cross is not just about death and what happens past death. The cross is about life, and it's a model for how you live your life. How can what I've learned or received help me sacrifice on behalf of someone else? That's how you'll recognize godly wisdom. A third distinction that comes to mind after reading these three chapters on wisdom from uh, Paul is just the whole time frame issue. That worldly wisdom is about here and now and how can I make the best decision uh, that helps me in this moment. And so you consider with your, your, uh, your data that you have uh, how to make the best decision. But godly wisdom, he says, takes in not just right now, but takes in the future and the future that God has for us. Paul often wants to talk about what we call eschatology, or basically the end. When you look at when it's all said and done, that God wins and that God's uh, values triumph, how does that impact what's going on in my present life? So wisdom is known by decisions that are made not just for this moment uh, and in this moment, but are made in this moment by looking forward and bringing the future back to the present if that makes sense. We, we look toward the end of what God is doing and say, how does what God is going to do for us 
and for this kingdom, how does that impact the decision that I'm struggling with right now? Some years ago, almost two decades, I guess now, Stephen Covey talked about uh, one of the habits of highly effective people as beginning with the end in mind. And he used to say that when you're trying to make a decision, you, you, he said you would, you would go to 80 and look backwards from 80. Like when I'm 80 years old, how would, how would this decision play out? Well, the older I get, I think 80 is not far enough yet. And so I like another point of view, which is let's look back from the grave. When I'm gone from this earth and people are evaluating my life and my legacy, how does this decision in this moment, how does, how does it impact that? If I begin with the end and come back to the present. And there's wisdom in not just being caught up in the present moment trying to make decisions, but looking at the whole scope of our life and the whole scope of what God is doing to make uh, decisions. We have to make decisions. But one of the criteria and real wisdom is I'm going to take a broader picture in. There was an early church father, uh, John Chrysostom. And he once said this. He said, if you feel like you lack perspective, take a walk through the graveyard. There's a perspective that comes that you can't get in other ways for our current moment. And real wisdom isn't just locked in to how will this play in this moment, but it looks into a longer uh, span of time. And then finally, and I don't fault the Corinthians for not knowing this. This is not a Greek way of looking at the world. This is a very Judeo-Christian way of looking at the world. And that is, you realize wisdom by its results. Uh, that's the way Jews were taught to evaluate wisdom, is what kind of life does this person who claims to be teaching wisdom live? Jesus put it another way, by your fruits you will know them. So when their life, the life that I live or you live, either validates or invalidates the wisdom by which we live. The goal and the result of the life of wisdom are the same. They're our life lived as God would have us live. And it's a life that in Corinth they would think is characterized by self-aggrandizement, by increasing notoriety and popularity, uh, a life characterized by getting ahead. But the results of a life in wisdom that Paul's looking at really aren't about pride and boasting so much as they are about humility. And that the results of a really, truly wise person is most likely to be a very humble life. And that's real interesting because the Greeks and the Romans did not consider humility a virtue. That was nowhere on their top ten list. It was all about getting ahead, showing that you were ahead, and demonstrating that you were better than other people. And so it's fascinating to me that when Paul is writing the letter to the Philippians in, in a Greek territory, he talks about remember the example of Jesus and have his mind in you who humbled himself by death on a cross. No decent thinking Corinthian would ever have thought about humility as a pattern or motto to follow. But real wisdom results not in pride and boasting, and self-aggrandizement, real wisdom is measured by the humility in which we live our lives. In fact, it could be said and has been said that humility is actually the first of all virtues because it is only the humble person that is open to learning more of the virtues and having them come to their life. One writer, Thomas More, puts it like this. He said that humility is the root from which spring all the virtues of life. It's the base. It's the foundation. 
There's a story you've heard probably before. It takes place before the days of Jesus. There's a rabbi with his disciple. And the disciple is very bright, bright to the point that it's made him arrogant. And because he's arrogant, it's hard to teach him any new lessons. So the rabbi is trying to figure out how to get through to him. And one day uh, they're talking and uh, his student, the disciple, has a cup of water. And the rabbi just picks up a pitcher and starts pouring into the cup. And pretty soon, because the cup is full, the water starts to overflow and get everywhere. And the disciple says, Rabbi, I mean, look, my cup's already full. I can't take any more. And the rabbi said, exactly. That is your life. You are right now so full of yourself that you cannot receive anything that God wants to give you. Real wisdom, real wisdom is not full of itself. It is open to receive from God and from others.